0: So this morning I uh, got up and decided I'm gonna watch highlights of that one-to-one drop. It's gonna be great. It's gonna relive some some magical moments. And uh, my daughter was was there with me, so we're you know watching it on my phone. And what, what time?
1: What time is this? Is this a six a.m.? Is this a seven a.m.? This is,
0: this is, this is a seven a.m. sort of thing. Okay. Uh, it was. She was finishing her breakfast, and uh, I was trying to give. You know, She wanted to watch a video on my phone. I said, all right, you can watch one video after I watch my video, and then we're going to go get dressed. She said, okay, and that was our deal, and it worked. She followed along with it. doesn't always happen, but it did this time. So we're watching the, the highlights, and the, it shows an aerial view of the Azteca Stadium. And she said, is that Talon's house? Because it was <laughs> obviously not RFK Stadium, but it looked kind of like it. I said, no, that's a different stadium. Uh, they have them all over. This one is as big as two Talon's houses. And she, she was not as impressed at that as I thought she was going to be. But we're watching, and the players, you know, it goes back to game action, and the players are there. And just out of nowhere, she just says, hey, where's Lucho? Because her favorite player was not on the screen, and she could tell that he wasn't there. And she's like, Aww. where's Lucho? And I said, well, he doesn't play for these teams. He plays, well, doesn't play for Argentina. But he'll be there next time you go to Talon's house. So that's the important thing.
1: That's pretty cute.
0: that That's my... Th- It did something cute this weekend. story.
1: It's a pretty good one.
0: She's got some good ones. This one didn't even involve Talon.
1: Well, it involved his house.
0: (laughs) Other than saying Talon's house, it didn't involve Talon doing something heroic, which sometimes happens. Uh, Sebi, how
2: did you watch the game? I was very tense. (laughs) I did not enjoy it. I never enjoy those games. I hate soccer. I hate watching the Mexican national <laughs> team. It's the worst experience ever. So um, I'll tell you guys, almost 100% of the time when Mexico plays, if we're in the same city, my mom and I watch together. Um, and and we, we kind of like shut my dad out. And like if the U.S. <laughs> celebrates, he's got to do it real on the down low. Um, it's like a quiet fist pump. So um, – but they're both in Mexico right now, actually, on a little vacation. And uh, so they're gone. So I, I was like, oh, let me, so I don't suffer the whole day. Let me have some people over. So we invited a bunch of people over. They were um, obviously a, a lot of American fans in the midst. And um, so it was tense, man. I was like a really nice host until the game started. And then when the U.S. got ahead, I like really started being very mean to people. <laughs> and then at halftime, I like, had to go upstairs, relax for a little bit. Came back down for the second half. And at the 60th minute mark, I turned to my Beyonce and I said, look, any other requests, anything else from here on out, deal with it. I'm, I'm out. Like, I'm out on these people. <laughs> so uh, the and last 30 clear, minutes, I did not say a word to anybody. I just watched.
0: To be clear, you are still engaged.
2: Yes. Oh, as of today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She That's hasn't good. gotten home from work yet. So I don't know if this could change, you know.
0: I'm glad to hear that. Uh, hey hey welcome in this is filibuster the black and red united podcast i'm adam taylor joined as always by jason anderson and ben bromley from BlackandRedUnited.com. tonight we have sebastian salazar from more places than i can count most recently of espn fc uh we're gonna talk about usa mexico and then we're gonna talk about dc united and the u.s open cup and mls play which comes back after what seems like weeks away it comes back this weekend i think it's only been one full week away but it Seems a lot longer than that. At least it does for me. Before we do anything, though, Jason, what are you drinking tonight?
3: Uh, it was hot today.
0: I don't know if anyone noticed that it
3: was extremely it was really, unpleasant. <laughs> uh, yes. So really that means it's hot it's weather. Uh, I'm I'm saying in exclamation points. So uh, I made myself a gin drink. I made the classic gin and tonic uh, with uh, blue coat gin, uh, and it is exactly what I needed.
0: Excellent. I I, I didn't have the wherewithal to make uh a gin drink instead I, i'm finishing off a bottle of uh Aguirre wine from spain that a friend brought over uh not too long ago to watch some things on our tv and she left it and it's quite tasty it's got a little bit of effervescence to it like a little bit of sparkling action happening which is nice on a hot
2: day or a hot night mm-hmm. sebi let's put you ahead of ben what are you drinking so, uh, very Mexican tonight. I'm keeping it. Uh, <laughs> Not a michelada, which, you know, you guys all, all know is quite a little r- rage here, I guess, with the Clamato. Just a chelada, straight. So, like, a uh, quarter of lime juice. It's fresh squeezed just a few minutes ago.
0: To be clear, he is making this on the camera in front of us. Right. We're, you know, we're witnessing
2: sorry. it. And then <laughs> you add the uh, Modelo Especial, or any really beer. Mexican beer goes well. Pacifico goes well. Cerveza Indio goes well. Um, but Modelo and Pacifico are my two number one seeds for a nice, cold chelada. I'll mix it up here, and it's like drinking a beer lemonade. It's great. On a hot day, you, you really can't beat it.
0: That is better than a shandy, which I know you personally have had a bad experience with on this show.
2: Mm-hmm. There's <laughs> always a weird shandy in the bunch. Somebody's always <laughs> bringing something weird to your fridge. It's true. Or to your
0: tailgate, yep. in some cases. Not that we're going to name names this week. <laughs> Let's, uh, Ben, what are you drinking?
1: Yeah, yeah, you were going to forget. I was. I
0: I very nearly did. (laughs) I'm used to doing three, what are you drinking at the outset? (laughs) (laughs) Not four.
1: So I went to the grocery store this weekend because my family was in town, and I wanted just some good, old-fashioned Midwestern Ohio, well, actually, it's from Michigan, uh, Werner's ginger ale. But uh, Kroger did not have any Werner's ginger ale. So... I had to do something else so I got Northern Neck Ginger Ale which is apparently a Virginia thing I have never heard of it before even though the Northern Neck is very close to where I live but I got it and it's a pretty generic ginger ale it's nothing special it's no verners uh get verners if you have the ability I, I have been told better.
3: that that verners is like an assault of carbonation um almost it's an assault
1: almost, of ginger
3: it it's like a comical amount of uh carbonation is what I'm told I, d- I can get it in delicious. my grocery stores, but I always go past it for ginger beer.
1: I mean, anyway. yeah, if you want if you want that ginger beer is better. But if you just want a right. uh, two liter of something delicious that's not like disgusting grossness that is Canada Dry or Seagram's. So oh, Seagram's especially is bad. <laughs> um, I'm just going to make fun of all of your ginger ales. We have very uh, strong ginger Do you have a
0: list? Do you have a list? Opinions.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do have a list. Um, but yes. Get Verner's Northern Neck is fine. Uh, if you can't get Verner's, I would just recommend getting Kroger brand or whatever. Ben, own. if this uh, story
0: doesn't end with you <laughs> just drinking like Bud Light Lime, I'm going to be really disappointed.
1: No, I don't have any Bud Light Lime in my house right now.
0: <laughs> right now, this is my
1: this is my ginger right ale <laughs> manifesto. This is my ginger ale manifesto.
0: And why are you giving us a ginger ale manifesto? Yeah, what did
1: you, What are you drinking? What is it you're drinking? <laughs> 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 ginger ale and bourbon.
0: <laughs> okay. Normally we focus on the, the spirit and, and less on the mixer, but, but which kind of bourbon is it? Out of Evan curiosity.
1: Williams. Evan Williams.
0: Okay. That's a good bourbon.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: I'm, I'm, glad, you're I'm glad you're not spoiling not. Your, your excellent ginger ale with crappy bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> I almost got through that. Did, did yeah. you not pay attention, though? He
3: didn't get the excellent ginger ale. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You've got
1: to pay attention to the, de- the but he, subtle but he doesn't nuances of Ben's,
0: Ben's uh, opus on Ginger Ale Manifesto. <laughs> ben, you should you should write out your, your Ginger Ale Manifesto. And okay, we'll put, I will. We'll, yes, we'll put, I will. If not on the site, then on the, the Patreon.
1: Nope, on the site.
2: <laughs> it's a negotiation.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, for the third time ever, on Sunday night, the U.S. men's national team took a point out of the Azteca in World Cup qualifying, going into Mexico City uh, and, and taking an early lead through Michael Bradley, then holding on even after Carlos Vela's equalizer. One to one USA Mexico at Estadio Azteca. Uh, Sebi, I guess you you probably had the most visceral reaction, so I'll I'll pick on you here. Walk us through what you felt when Bradley intercepted that touch from Chicharito and when he chipped Memo Ochoa.
2: I mean, I was I was really 50-50 in that moment. I was both just filled with rage because the Mexican national team is really, um, I, I think, immensely talented. I think it's talented enough to um, make a run in the World Cup or in a, confederations cup or in a copa america or in a gold cup if you want to say that the gold cup I, I don't think provides enough competition that that would be really remarkable and um and i i think they've they've failed to do it for so long and a, a big issue that i think um, a lot of mexican fans might share is um, there's a casualness to mexico sometimes that is just beyond infuriating and i think in the moment that it happened i saw just the worst of that casualness on display in in what is the biggest setting, you know a home world cup qualifier against your biggest and you you could argue only rival in the region, you know the, the only ring stick that really matters, and so for your star player to be so casual in such a moment um, you know it it rushed back all these feelings of of um of kind of mis- missteps in the past, especially in this rivalry, missed opportunities, um, that, that, that to have haunted this Mexican team. Uh, and then I also, in the same minute, in the same moment, I was like, it's such a fluke, you know, it <laughs> turnover. If it happens 10 times, doesn't end up with Michael Bradley in that spot to hit that shot. And memo so far out of position, um, it only happens once out of out of twenty times that that same turnover occurs, um, and so I, I was I was I was I, I thought that it was in one moment like everything that was symptomatic of why the Mexican national team never fully reaches its potential and totally a fluke, and you know the truth is probably somewhere in between.
0: Yeah, both goals in this game were really. Uh, Spectacular shots and, and great plays by the the goal scorers. Great individual efforts. Bradley ov- obviously forced the turnover, pushed it into space. Um, I mean, it was a great assist from Chicharito. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. But Bradley had, to... huh? <laughs> yeah. <to laughs> goal, I had mean that to... that was his front to goal there. <laughs> Wrong goal, but <laughs> but Bradley still had a lot to work a lot of work to do. Carlos Vela obviously also had a a lot to do. Jason, you're at Doc FC. Um, what was the reaction there to to Vela's goal, and and what did you see with that one? I know there's been a lot of talk about who's to blame on that one, with lots of blame going to various different places and lots of people disclaiming blame from various defenders in that play. Uh, what was your take on on Mexico's goal?
3: Well, the the reaction at Doc FC was, I would say, there was like maybe one out of every six people there was uh favoring mexico and so those folks got uh, a nice moment of celebration um one of the bartenders got to celebrate uh pretty enthusiastically but um the rest of the bar was just sort of like well uh i I think people were still trying to they were there was more stunned than anything else because uh people were still trying to get over the what happened on the uh the moments before that goal, which was yeah, fifteen seconds a,
0: before that, yeah.
3: Right. Um you know, the US had put a ball into the box, they sent some numbers into the box, um, including um, two center backs. They tried to uh get something going. It Mexico had a chance to clear, they didn't really clear. The US got another chance to keep it in, so everyone stayed forward and the ball fell to Bobby Wood and it looked like a sure goal and he just missed the ball. Uh he just swung and complete missed. Whiff. Um And Mexico alertly played the ball as quickly as possible upfield, knowing that the U.S. was, uh, in a bad way numbers-wise. Um, as soon as they broke past midfield, you could see that the situation was, um, Yedlin and Bradley playing center back. Um, Beasley was at left back, but there was no one on the right side. The midfield, everyone was, the numbers were there, but they weren't in any kind of position to do anything. Um... And so Mexico, you know, to their credit, took advantage of the fact that the transition to defense was just not there, that they got caught. The U.S. sold out to go for a goal. They got caught, and um, the moment was there to really create a big threat. Um, It would have been nice to see some sort of presence. Literally, if any U.S. player transitions to defend the pocket in front of the makeshift center backs in that moment— Vela at least doesn't have the time to cut, he cuts over on Beasley, but you can shut that down at least and make him feel a little pressure before he hits his shot, um, but instead he cut into a wide open gap, um, and there's not really much, uh, I mean, Be- yes, I, I suppose there's the opportunity for Beasley to poke the ball away at, at some point, but it would have taken a lot, and if he, se- if he tries to shift his weight to get that poke in, then Vela's gonna do something else to cut away from him, because he's, it's a one-on-one, um, and, and he and did
1: exactly what he was told to do in that defensive situation, is push Vela inside and rely on his center backs to help, uh, to, to bring help. There just weren't any center right. backs. Right, you'd much rather, even, even with
0: Vela being left-footed, you'd much rather have him shooting from distance than running to the end line with our defense anything but set, well, and Chicharito running at full speed to the near post. Yeah, that, and, that is, that's a nightmare scenario.
3: And if you if you guide him inside onto his favorite foot, you're you're kind of courting a little danger already. Um, if you guide him inside to where no one is, um, right. That's it's uh, a lot easier for him to do what he's going to do. Um, it's not a it wasn't a good look from Brad Gozan that that got past him so easily. No. Um, it was a well struck shot, definitely. Um, he hit that with uh, some venom and. I'm not sure that any U.S. goalkeeper gets to it, but I would I would say that there are several I can think of that would have come closer to getting to it. Uh, Guzan just sort of used his his left arm for balance so he didn't fall over uh, when he leaned that way, and that was pretty much it. Um, but it's one of those situations where it looks bad on him, but ultimately the ball's probably going in um, barring an absolutely miraculous save. It's going in regardless. Um, so the problem for me is not so much Brad Guzan looking bad on the goal. It's that defensive transition, that moment of uh, recovering back was just too disorganized from the whole group. And you end up with what we talked about, which is um, an excellent player getting a chance to cut in on his preferred foot and have a go from a a spot that he's probably scored a few goals from. So don't do that, is my advice. Uh, Transition a little more uh, intelligently than just sort of scrambling back. It was a little bit like... um, if, you, if anyone remembers the movie Blues Brothers, um, uh, just the cops trying to scramble in <laughs> position to stop the Blues Brothers, um, but they all
0: end up in a I'm car wreck. Everybody in the U.S. like jumped off a cliff in their cars. Well, I and just I'm just saying the that the everybody
3: ends up uh, confused and scrambling rather than doing their job effectively. Um, That's. Yeah. We, that, we didn't have quite the same numbers because I think that would have required like a solid seven or eight hundred people. Um, to be on the field, but uh, it was still a mess in transition. And it was one of those moments where you could like the the. I know from 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 my experience at the bar that there were several people as soon as that play broke past midfield that were like, uh, oh, no, this is not yeah. good. Um, yeah, when he and got it just Kalen got worse Acosta and worse. That's yeah, where it, that's right. this is getting real bad. Yeah. Um, When you look up and you see Bradley is scrambling to fill in as the auxiliary center back, like, oh, uh, this is, like, he's just getting there now, and he's the only one that's actually maybe thinking ahead of what's going on, like, he sees that danger at all, so, um, not the best moment in a game where the U.S., I thought, played, given the short rest, given the venue, um, Given having to cycle out so many players, I think they handled themselves pretty well. But that moment
2: was definitely not one of those good moments. To me, the biggest miss in that moment, um, you know, a lot of people obviously want to point the finger at DeMarcus Beasley. And I think that. You know, that we have this weird thing now where we, we tend to pick on guys. Like, all we talked about for the last month and a half was how old DeMarcus Beasley is. And mm-hmm. obviously there's something there that multiple coaches have liked beyond <laughs> what fans have said, right? Let's I mean, let's be honest, you know? I, I think um, – but he's he was a very easy target. I think as soon as people saw him in the 11, they were waiting for the moment to be like, I yeah. knew yeah. that Beasley shouldn't be in there, you
0: know? <laughs> I mean, some people were saying that when he got stepped on. Right. And and I, yeah, like like His know, old bones are brittle. He shouldn't be in there.
2: Like, I knew it. I know more than a real. You know, I uh, <laughs> like, all right, relax. Yeah, but I'll, I'll, there's two ends of this for me. One is let's look at the guy who was running that break. So Chicharito yeah. was a ghost for most of this game. But mm-hmm. Chicharito is also not the player that any Mexican fan, he's like the ninth guy that I would want to have running that break. And the moment, and I'm such a Kellen Acosta mark. I love this kid. I can't mm-hmm. wait for him to break into the U.S. 11 in, in a consistent way. I, I, I think he's the future of that position for this team. Really excited about him. But he has to make that play. And it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be winning the ball. Although right. it'd be anything better than getting megged by Chicharito, who's not a great dribbler, not mm-hmm. great in open space. Um, and you had him dead to rights. Like, I think Acosta had him lined up. That's what makes it so frustrating to me. He had him covered. Um, so to get beat there, I think, is, a, is a, a, a mistake of a young player who's just into that space. He'll hopefully learn from it and realize, hey, in the future i got to take the yellow if need be, whatever. Yeah. But I, I have to stop this attack. I think once it got to Vela versus Beasley, um, let's, why, is, why is DeMarcus Beasley in the game? Because the coach, not because of, of what his ceiling is, but because of what his basement is. Because we, we, we trust him as a staff to put him in the game. We know what we're going to get. So Beasley, one-on-one with Carlos Vela, is like, all right, a lot of things have broken down for it to get to one-on-one, me versus this guy. This is not what anybody wanted. Why am I in the game? Am I in the game to make this incredible one, one-on-one against a player who's much better than me? Or am I in the game to be make the smart play, play the odds, force him into the middle, hope somebody steps up, he mishits a shot, my goalie chooses to dive, those <laughs> things, and those and, things, and it doesn't end up in the back of, of our net. DeMarcus Beasley did exactly what he was supposed to do in that situation, given the disadvantage he was at in the one-on-one matchup with Carlos Vela. The fact that it ended up in the back of the net is a testament first to Vela, and second is a description of what happened everywhere else on that play. That ball got through two or three people, good <clears and throat> <removed throat> late. Kellen Acosta could have stopped it much earlier. So I'm not pointing the finger at Beasley, not, not in the least. Could he have made a great play? Sure, but... Uh, maybe that that window against that player was a few years ago for Demarcus.
0: Yeah, I I do think Memo Ochoa was robbed for not getting a secondary assist on this. That throw was that was a and special. Unless he would have gotten it. I'm I'm not gonna lie. He he should should have been on the score sheet for that play. The right. the goal.
2: And look, but that that aggression is also a little bit of what had him
0: yeah high right.
2: on the goal. So I mean, I guess
0: if, right. He was supporting possession instead of being careful first, but how often does Mexico make that turnover in midfield? That's, it's, you know, it's, uh, one of those low probability, absolutely catastrophic when it happens kind of plays. And he chose to focus on the first part and and got burned by the second. Um, I want to talk about the, the difference in performance for the U S in this one from the last time they played Mexico Notationally, it was the same formation. It was a 5-4-1, just like Jürgen Klinsmann ran out in Columbus. But on the field, I don't know if you could have had a starker difference. Omar Gonzalez looked like he understood how to defend in space in a way that he he didn't in Columbus. The team looked connected and drilled in a way they weren't in Columbus. And I think that's because they were drilled in a way. They weren't leading up to the game in Columbus. Uh I- Sebi, what did you notice just from the the players on the field watching them? How much more confident they seemed in this one, and what what other than Bruce Arena saying on day one, "We're going to play like this in Mexico. We're going to play a five five man in the back." What was the difference?
2: You know, I don't know that there's a much more important difference than the one you just mentioned, which is Arena having this plan, having it from jump, knowing exactly what to do. Um, look. the... Any team that goes to a three-at-the-back setup, the biggest question is what do we do with those three spots? Like, how do we execute our three-back? Um, and the way the U.S. kind of shifted into that and you had your true, real, what I would describe as wing-backs, um, which I don't know that um, you ever had that in the Klinsman era, so clearly defined as, as what I think I saw last night. Um, and you basically had two layers and an and a, and wing backs that the mexican had the Mexican team had to contend with in the final third, and especially late in the game, which was when Mexico had overwhelming handle of the of the ball um the really the shape of this team when Mexico had it was unbelievable they they seem to have every passing lane cut off. Mexico dominated statistically in a way where when you dominate, you usually create a lot more opportunities, and they didn't. Um, yeah. This team, as you said, looked well-drilled in this setup, uh, and it looked like a much more kind of defensive three-back than I would say uh, we ever saw under Klinsman. This was, this was a three-back, five-back. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean real
0: that, that actually leads me to another question The this was a very defensive application of the three back five back whatever but we we've seen with mexico that they can play an attacking five back system they played five back with actual fullbacks not even wingbacks and would take it to teams because they would dominate possession from that so i i do want to push back a little bit on on some commentary i've seen about how this was obviously always going to be a, a low block because that's the only way you can play i agree this was always going to be a defend and counter kind of game, but that's less because of the formation and more because that's what you do to get a result at the Azteca when you're not wearing green.
2: Uh, yeah, I would make one other point where people say that like, you know, or criticize in any way that the away arena handled this tactically. Um, I actually do think there was a, a bit of aggression in, you know, the, the way Christian Pulisic plays in Dortmund is basically like, hey, you're the outside midfielder, four four two. 2 Do lots of box-to-box work. And anything you give us in the final third is, is extra. But, but do, do the box-to-box stuff. Don't, don't really try to be special. I think Arena could have totally deployed him in that way in Mexico and in, in Azteca. And it would have made sense. Hey, look, I can't give you total freedom from defense. I have to ask you to do actually a majority defense in this game. I'm not really going to let you do your thing, even though you're our best player and best chance to make a goal you know, in this place, I really have to focus on defense. I think we saw, a, even though he was wide, he was also given some space centrally um, and, and a little bit more, I think, defensive, the potential to be irresponsible defensively. Um, and I think that was an aggressive position from Arena. That, that's about as the most aggressive thing he would do on the night. But I, I think it deserves some mention that he didn't, he not in every situation where he could have in air quotes played it safe did he. That that was a decision that was meant more to chase three or to chase a goal than to, you know, settle for a scoreless draw. He he could have he could have been more conservative in how he deployed ballistic and he and he wasn't and I think that deserves some commendation.
0: Absolutely. I think one thing he did that was very pragmatic, which is a a word you hear sometimes used in the pejorative about Bruce Arena, but I'm using it here in a very um more descriptive way. Not not necessarily to praise him, but just it was a pr- pragmatic decision to go five in the back. And I think the the proof is in the the stat line for Mexico. They they had ten shots, only one of them on goal, only four from inside the eighteen yard box, zero from inside the the six. Jason, was it just the US tactics that and and shape and commitment and performance? uh that that did this or did mexico make some mistakes or or could they have done something different as well
3: i i think mexico was was pretty impatient um in the way that they tried to attack this uh this us setup it, um i think they played a lot of balls in the air into the box um which i feel like is kind of like the first thing you shouldn't do when you're looking at the players the us had on the field um, while Mexico, I mean, their front line doesn't really feature anyone who's that good in the air up against, going up against somebody. Chita is pretty good, um, at getting free and, is on goal once he's on goal, once he's free. But if he's having to go up against someone who's actually, uh, putting a body on him, he's not going to win those physical battles against mm-hmm. Gonzalez or Cameron or Reem. Um, and I feel like there was maybe just that lack of patience, um, throughout uh, Mexico's lineup. I'm trying to bring up their, um, you know, there's a ton of crosses and they're they're deep on the left side uh, and then maybe a little further upfield on the right. But there's a lot of whip this ball in and see what happens rather than trying to break things down. Um, And I think when Sebi mentioned the casualness that that Mexico can play with sometimes, um, I think that is kind of linked in with this sort of... um, just a certain amount of, like, the assumption that it's going to work. Um, and this was, like, the assumption that we can get the ball in and it's going to work itself out. Um, the U.S. is on short rest. They don't play well at Azteca. Um, I-, I think there was just a certain amount of expectation that this game was going to go well. I mean, really well. has played really well throughout the Hex. Um, that was only the second goal they've conceded in the Hex. Um, they were coming and the first goal was the, uh, U S goal in the, um, game in Columbus. Um, so they'd gone four games without conceding to anybody. Um, they were coming off of a game against Honduras that was kind of a breeze. Um, I, I think maybe there was just a sense of feeling like this was a win and they just had to come out and get the job done rather than knowing that they maybe need to take it up another level. Um, and it just led to a certain amount of impatience, a certain amount of, lazy decision-making, um, that ended up making it a little easy on the U.S., um, defensively, because realistically, if you've got the possession advantage they had, um, was it, uh, 73.7%, uh, according yeah, three to, to Opta? One. Um, yeah, you shouldn't end that game with only 10 shot attempts, um, which means that, you know, we, we've we seen with D.C. especially, we've seen a lot of teams outpossess D.C. and they end up taking like 25 shots. And the issue is like, yeah, but they took all these shots from 30 yards. Uh, Mexico had the patience to not do that, but they didn't have the patience to try and get the ball and try and break break someone down on the dribble, get into the box, that sort of thing. Um, it seemed like they were just willing to beat that man early and then whip the ball in. And, and that was it. Um And even after making some, I mean, it's not like they sat on their laurels. They made a first half sub that was based on um, tactical uh, needs rather than an injury. Um, They brought in uh, Aquino as well to try and go direct at Bradley, or I'm sorry, at Beasley. Um, So they definitely tried to change things, but it seems like, it seemed like changing the players didn't necessarily change the decision-making that the players, the guys on the field were still doing the same things. Um, which had to be a little bit irritating to Osorio. I'm sure he was not whipping them to whip him, whip in a ton of crosses and, and see what happens. Um, but for whatever reason, it just sort of kept repeating itself. It was a weird pattern to see play out for 90 minutes.
0: So this is maybe the first time in the last five plus years, this cycle and, and even the last World Cup cycle. It's the first time that both the U.S. and Mexico at the same time look comfortable favorites to qualify for the world cup. And it's weird to say that because these are the two dominant teams in this region, but this cycle, the U S obviously got off to a terrible start last cycle. The Mexico needed a a goal from Graham Zusi against Costa Rica or against uh, Panama rather to get in to, to the, to play New Zealand for a chance to go to the world cup. Uh, Sebi, what are, the, what are the knock-on effects of the U.S. and Mexico kind of reasserting themselves in CONCACAF? What does this mean for the Costa Ricas, Panamas, Hondurases of the world?
2: See, I don't – I think CONCACAF is getting to a place now where it's stratified enough that, like, we can't just lump – all of Central America in one. We can't, you know, like I th- right. I mean, that's that's I. That's why I was shouting out those three specifically. But so, but even even within those programs, I would say there's a there's a market difference, right? To me, um, Costa Rica is not and will never be at the is at the spot of a U.S. Mexico. They can, mm-hmm. they can compete with the U.S. and Mexico in given cycles, in given tournaments, of course, because at the end of the day. Uh, you're only fielding 11 guys. But just if you look at resources and at populations, um, Mexico and the U.S. Just, just have to be creating deeper, better talent pools than everybody else. So, so they're Tier 1. Costa Rica is by themselves, I think, in the next tier um, because they've, proved, they've proven it. They've proven it with quality of players, quality performance at the international stage. Um, and I think they run a program that will continue to produce other teams, I think, will drop off into this, like, third tier of CONCACAF, which basically is, is a crapshoot for the playoff. And anybody from, I'm te- you know, we're looking at the future of CONCACAF now, right? Anywhere from Canada to Panama can jump up, and I think it will be very cyclical with those teams. You'll get a good, you'll get a good generation. You'll get a couple lucky bounces and you'll be the fourth or fifth team into the World Cup into that playoff cycle. Well, it's
0: only a couple more. Until it's only this cycle and one more, and then we have six CONCACAF teams going in.
2: And then, and then what will be really interesting is who takes spots four, five, and six. Like, which of those six to seven countries becomes the top tier of that and starts to get consistently into the 48-team World Cup? That's, that's where I think CONCACAF is headed. I mean, the U.S. and Mexico are— are just better. I mean, they have better leagues. Both, they're bo- both leagues are basically the two highest-paying leagues on the continent now. We're drawing talent from all over, which will help us in the future in terms of people coming here, staying, soccer players coming here, staying, marrying American women, marrying other women, and having um, kids in America. I mean, it's happened in Mexico. They're now like second, third-generation guys with Brazilian dads who played in the Mexican League who are big-time players for the Mexican national team and in the ne- Mexican national team pool. So... We're only going to get better, these two countries, and I think the gap between Mexico, the U.S., and, and Costa Rica, and then everybody else beyond that is going to continue to be significant.
3: Yeah, One thing I'd add to that is just the fact that the two times we've seen the two big powers in CONCACAF come close to not qualifying in this modern era have been like exceptionally bad runs. Um, Mexico went on an extraordinarily like freakishly bad stretch of games in the last hex. And in this one, it took Jurgen Klinsmann's mismanagement and a bunch of individual player mistakes too um, to end up pushing the U S into a situation where they had to, um, they had games that felt like real must wins that, that home game against Honduras was, um, mathematically speaking, it wasn't a must win, but it was close enough to it just on the, the, the general law of averages you have to expect that there's a certain bar you have to be able to clear uh points wise in CONCACAF and for the U.S. if they didn't get three out of that one it was going it started to look difficult for them to get above that bar um but in both cases it took a special level of mismanagement off on and off the field to end up in that situation um generally speaking those two are are not going to do that more than like once every 20 years give or take um and
0: they just happen so to do it back to back
3: Right. But, it, you know, and, and that means that, um, that stratification is going to be in place and is, is it's that difficult. It's that big of a gap where even that level of mismanagement still doesn't end up costing either of them, their spot in the world cup. Um, and when that line drops and when it goes from, uh, four or three and a half, I guess is the way FIFA likes to put it down to six. Then, uh, I mean, at that point you start to wonder like, uh, could one of us manage the U.S. to a World Cup? Um, <laughs> just,
0: just, uh, just through sheer like— I think sheer, they should like... hire all of us. Hire Billibuster as the, the U.S. national as, team as, manager in I know 2025 it's... and just tell us to do what we can.
3: Sweden had co-managers for a while. I've never heard of three. That would be—we'd break break new
0: ground. That's what that's what we'd go for.
2: You know, but think, think about this impact on qualifying, too. Um, mm. and, and this is one of the big reasons that Mexico has had the issues that I kind of expressed in a frustrated tone earlier in the show is, you know, they can't settle on a manager. They can't settle on who's hiring the manager. Um, and, and so this consistent overturn of, of the direction of the program has, has really haunted Mexico. And, and it happens because the press and the public is so intense that in a qualifying campaign that is already extremely forgiving in CONCACAF. When you have the slightest little slip up, these guys are under pressure and the Federation makes these these snap judgments and fires guys. When World Cup qualifying for Mexico and the U.S. become total non-pressure situations where you can afford the blip that the U.S. had under Klinsman or you can even afford the blip that Mexico had under all five of the coaches that they had in the lead up to 2013, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You can afford that. Now I think... That, that pressure seems would seem to drop off a little bit. And I hope what it will mean, certainly for the Mexican program, and I would say the same for the U.S., because I think we're heading there in terms of public and media pressure, is I hope it creates an atmosphere where we let these coaches, um, provided things are going in an adequate direction, build. Because what's happened to Mexico in the World Cup is very much a symptom of not having coaches who have been able to bring their their experiment to its completion. And Mexico has never played, I think, with a full deck of hands in the World Cup, except for maybe the first run under La Volpe 2006 because he had four years run up and didn't get fired. And if you have a qualifying situation where you say, look, man, we'll walk backwards into this thing, I think you can allow coaches to develop... Play different players, not not bring in a guy that's 35 because you need to win in Honduras tonight. Mm. Let play your Kellen Acosta's, play your young guys in Honduras because even if you don't win tonight, you're still going. And now they've gotten that incredible experience. And while the hardened fires of a Concacaf qualifying might not no longer exist for the U.S., maybe they don't need that anymore. Maybe they need a setting where they can grow into a team that's had a, a, a true evolution and then can take its game to the highest stage in a World Cup which is what really matters and how the rest of the world ultimately judges our progress.
0: Yeah, I do think you still need that crucible in the intervening years though. Um and without qualifying I think we're we're moving in toward a a broader Copa America that will include the uh include CONCACAF teams like this last one did and that can happen more regularly. Maybe that provides it uh, especially if they get rid of the off year gold cup so i I think i 'm inclined to agree with you that the broadening could could be good the broadening of qualification could end up being good in the u s we 've almost had the opposite problem from Mexico where we give a coach too much leash, sign them up for a second world Cup cycle when you know before they finish the first in some cases so it'll be it 'll be interesting to see how that plays out and whether the pressure on either side of the the Rio Grande um whether that equalizes a little bit as as we go forward uh I guess one last question on USA Mexico it's coming out tonight that Jesse Gonzalez the FC Dallas keeper has filed his one-time FIFA switch paperwork to move to the US he will be considered cap tied uh even without ever playing a USA game Sebi what are your feelings on on that both as a dc united guy who who loves bill hamid as i know you do and as a a fan of mexico who just lost a what appears to be a pretty bright prospect
2: yeah so i i um it it was really shocking when it first came out that he had been named to the gold cup roster and that he would accept and and do the one-time change if if he did make the final team um like literally the week before it had come out in the Mexican press that he was committed to Mexico. Um, so I, I I feel for the kid because, um, you know, I can relate to this. Sometimes you grow up between two things and like you you really feel like some days like you're one and some days like you're another thing. And um, so I, I think people who rush to, to judge how he identifies are, are kidding themselves, you know um if if he feels like he identifies as an american kid or as a mexican kid or that that's just the best career opportunity it's totally up to him i, I think the people around him have let him down here um because i think obviously when it comes out that well ahead of time oh he would accept if it did, that's coming from an agent or that's mm-hmm. coming from somebody very close to the player that's that's intentionally spreading that information um and for two weeks before the Mexican press to be running with essentially the same story on the Mexican side um, suggests that the people around him, and I don't know that this, I don't think this is the kid. I don't think this is Jesse um, because he's represented Mexico and, and done so very successfully at the youth national team levels and was very proud to do so if you, you know, judging by all his statements and and stuff on social media. Um, But I think he's, he's kind of playing both sides here. The people around him seem to be playing both sides um, and I'm just I'm thankful that the kid does not play in the Mexican League because he'll be sheltered at FC Dallas. But if, if he had played, if this had gone down this way and he was playing for Puebla or some other team in the Mexican League, the fans, the press, uh, after saying you were with one and then committing to the other, not even, not even the fact they played youth national team, but the fact that literally two weeks before this came out, he was committed in air quotes to Mexico. Um, that quick flip-flop will not sit well down there. And um, so I feel bad because I feel like the kid's going to end up vilified for something that could have been handled better, uh, and at the end of the day, is, is not really his fault. You know, good on him. If this is a good opportunity for him, and he sees it as the best for his career or the one that makes him more whole in how he identifies, then go for it, you know? And, and I think Mexico loses a, a very good goalkeeping prospect, but, um, you know... I, Goalkeeper is a position I never worry about because you can always find one guy that's playing well, and, and that's, that's what you need. So I, I don't know that it, it hurts Mexico too much in, in that perspective, but I, I, I don't like the handling of it if I'm, if I'm somebody that's rooting for Jesse Gonzalez, the kid, because I, I think it puts him in a bad spot.
0: Sebi, thanks for coming on the show, man. Of course. Always fun. Tell our listeners, the few of them who don't follow you, where they can find you online.
2: Uh, Twitter at Sebi Salazar foot F U T. Uh, I think it's the same on Facebook. It's basically the same thing on Twitter. I just put links to all the stuff. And then, uh, on Instagram too, Sebi Salazar. It's, a, it's there. I don't think there's an F U T on Instagram. I tweet mostly pictures of me like coaching or playing pickup soccer. So it's not really that interesting, <laughs> but whatever. Give it a follow.
0: Uh, no, I've seen some studio pics in there from Bristol.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. I do some, yeah. I do some cool behind the scenes stuff too, I guess. Um, some stuff from up there so yeah you can follow me on my travels because uh, I, I do go to some cool places now and then there you go stick around
0: guys we will be right back to talk about dc united this is filibuster the black and red united podcast hey ben um you wouldn't say this is a hostile work environment would you you can tell uh, me
1: depends i mean well i should ask you i mean is our goats hostile
0: Welcome back to filibuster DC United return to the oldest cup competition in this here, uh, country, I suppose continent, maybe I'm not sure the U S open cup, uh, starts for DC United on Tuesday night at 7 30 PM at the Maryland soccer plex up there in Boyd's Maryland and, uh, DC United are playing the darlings of this tournament to date. The last surviving amateur team, Christos FC, of Maryland. Uh we talked about it a little bit last week, but we're going to we're going to get a little bit more into this game and then look ahead to the the game against Toronto. So, Jason, who the hell are these guys and why is it that everyone who's not a DC United fan is rooting against DC United this week?
3: I mean, the the main thing, the main reason people are rooting against DC is because it's an amateur team against a professional team. Um it's an extremely American sports um Story thing. I mean, dating back to Rocky, um, and any other sports movie you've probably ever seen. um, There was the what is it, Invincible, with uh, Mark Wahlberg as a regular dude who gets a spot on the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, It's it's a standard sports thing that everyone loves—the idea of a super duper underdog um, taking down the mean-spirited and
0: invariably uh, poorly written uh, (laughs) professional team. Um, Wait, wait, wait. Are you saying Iceland in The Mighty Ducks 2 was not an (laughs) accurate portrayal of that country? I feel like that's an extremely inaccurate (laughs) example because Iceland's not even a good
3: hockey country. Um, I guess maybe the only... York
0: is great at hockey.
3: The only good example, I think, of a well-written villain in any of those is Apollo Creed. Everything after that is super downhill. Um, But in any case, the idea that someone you share an office with or that uh, you might see out at a bar on the weekends, that guy is going to possibly be suiting up against a professional team, is appealing to just about everybody. Um, And in fact, if this were Christos against uh, the Philadelphia Union, of course we would be sitting here talking about how awesome it would be if Christos beat the Philadelphia Union or anyone else in MLS. It's true.
0: I I Um, begrudge no one, except maybe some DC United fans. I begrudge no one for rooting for Christos in this game. I admit that DC United are, are the villain. They are wearing a black hat in this game and that's fine. Um, I still want them to win. <laughs> um, but yeah,
3: I mean, to, to answer the second portion, I mean, it's not, it's a situation where it is an amateur team. Um, it is a team of guys that, um, as they've said over and over in, in the interviews they've gotten since, uh, getting through to this stage, um, they don't have training sessions. Um, they don't have somebody sitting down doing um a film review of DC United, though I feel like I feel like that's probably not quite true. Um I feel like that one they probably someone probably has been like, well we should watch a few games because it's easy to do so. Um whereas it's difficult to scout your amateur league opponent because you'd have to skip your own game probably to watch them on the other field nearby. Um, but uh this is a team that's still got numerous players that flirted with professional play or opted not to pursue professional play. In the case of um, Pete the III, who scored a ton of goals at UMBC, um, UMBC is a good college soccer program, um, and he's he was their big goal scorer for, I think, three of his four years. Um, he was drafted by Montreal. That didn't work. He ended up in USL for a season and is now... Um, The assistant coach at UMBC, and he told the Post earlier this week that it was basically just a financial decision, um, which is the reality of playing in USL as a a young player is you're not making very much money at all. Um, It's probably easier to find a coaching gig. It's probably an easier life, and it's, you know, probably smarter for him long term, um, if we're being honest. Um, But they've still got some um, other—their goalkeeper, Phil Saunders, played in Iceland— um, Levi Huapiu, who scored the goal that got them into this game, um, was drafted by the union, um, at one point to speak of the the union, of course, um, he played with Rochester for, uh, uh, two or three years. Um, so th- I, I think Huapiu, if I'm not mistaken, this is his first year without a pro contract. Um, so this is someone who was very recently a
0: professional player. So this is kind um, of a loosely amateur team. This would not right. mean, I mean,
3: they are, they are amateurs in that they currently aren't training at a professional level, but most of their players have some significant professional experience. Um, uh, this is not just a group of random dudes who ended up hap- happening to stumble into this, uh, this round. They knocked out Richmond who, I uh, Richmond's not having a good year. Um, but they still went to Richmond and won that game. And and if you're Richmond and you're not having a good year, that was an important game. The kickers have a long history of doing fairly well in the Open Cup and, and getting through a couple of rounds and maybe even taking down an MLS club. Um, so that was a surprising um, development, but that kind of underlines the the talent level. The, this is a team of guys that could, that could easily, all of them could be playing at the USL level in terms of the technical side of the game, the soccer IQ side of things. Um and probably in terms of athleticism, if they had the time to train, um, but that is maybe the maybe the biggest advantage that United should have on what is apparently going to be a, a brutal night uh, at the soccerplex in terms of weather. I think the heat index is supposed to be somewhere above nine. um, the advantage United has more than anything else is just the simple fact that they are training uh, at a high level day in and day out. They have uh, specialized training programs. They have a strength and conditioning coach, whereas the post story interviewing them, uh, from a couple, was it a couple of days ago or even just today? Um, yeah, it came out, it came out earlier this afternoon. We're recording the day before the game. Um, but the story notes a couple things where like they went to an amateur tournament, by the way, they've won a bunch of national amateur tournaments. I think they've got two or three, I think it's two in a row where they won the national amateur open cup. Um, but where they've shown up to a tournament and other teams have looked at them grabbing a thirty pack of beer and drinking by the pool, and the other teams have been shaking their heads in disappointment and bewilderment, and then they've that Christos has gone and beaten that team. Um, so that's a major advantage for United. I don't think they're going out drinking tonight uh, before this uh, before Tuesday's game. But um, the fitness level it, it should, you should be always Stick to better.
0: your stick to your routine.
3: Yeah, I mean, maybe I don't don't want to tell them their business. They've obviously done something right to get this. You're ever going to sit around a pool. Tonight's the night to do it. Um, But uh, either way, um, in the heat, if United plays at a high pace, if they don't let Christos slow the game down, they should be able to handle this without too much of a fuss. Um, But on the other hand, you have to acknowledge some things. Christos beat the kickers without either starting center back. They were actually starting... Um, Cody Albrecht, who has who was at one point a United Academy player, um, who is about five seven, uh, maybe not even that. He was playing center back um, because he was the best candidate for the job. Because they, I mean, it's a true team of guys with day jobs, and thus they can't just show up for a game that pops into their schedule. They have lives. Um, imagine if someone told you uh, you did something last week, like, hey, this week you have to make a. To make it Tuesday, we have a game like i I can on Tuesday, I've got stuff to do already right um that is their life um that is the way their team works is that there are guys that might not be able to make this game because of when it takes place um and that's the kind of it's it's a bizarre situation, but if United just plays at a high tempo and emphasizes the fact that they're going to be fitter and stronger and should be more cohesive. They really shouldn't have any problems, but if you know this game gets 30 minutes in and there's not a goal on the board, the pressure starts to grow a little bit. Um, and that's kind of what they did against the kickers is they let them get frustrated. Um, they just lulled the game to sleep. They just made it a very boring game and the kickers failed on their couple opportunities they carved out and that game got really frustrating for Richmond. And they just started taking long shots. They tried to play hero ball and all of a sudden um, the, the they made one defensive mistake and Christos put it away. Um, That's the game plan that they're going to keep trying. And that's probably um, their only way of their only viable way of winning the game is to play exactly that game plan and having it work. But it takes that's a game plan. that takes two to tango. Um, And if United keeps their heads and stays uh, patient when it doesn't work immediately, they should still.
0: Ben, last week we talked a little bit about whether it would be worthwhile for for Ben Olsen to put his starters and in this game, just as kind of a confidence building measure. And I think you and Jason rightly came down on the side of uh, not doing that because fixture congestion is a thing and injuries are a thing and heat is a thing. So let's not let's not push the envelope. I think another issue, though, is at least in the attack, there aren't really many starters that are that are healthy. niarco's just coming back. Lloyd Sam is there, obviously Lucho. But on the forward line, there's not a lot. Who do you expect to start this game for United?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty easy to uh, describe. I think it's going to be Alhaji Kamara leading the line. It's going to be Sebastian Latou and Lamar Nagel on the wings. And it's going to be uh, Marcelo Sarvas and uh, Julian Buescher in the center of midfield. I think that's pretty easy to say. Uh, I think it's also... uh, just as quote controversial to talk about the back line, uh, which I think is going to be, I hope it's Bobby Boswell. I really hope it's Bobby Boswell starting on the back line uh, alongside uh, Jalen Robinson, who is definitely going to start. Um, but that depends on what Ben Olson wants to do. So,
0: Well, obviously I think the who he starts in, Against uh, against Christos is going to be influenced by who he wants to start against Toronto FC because that is
1: definitely
0: as much as we love the Open Cup. uh, I I think Ben Olsen is probably more focused on the league and trying to get that campaign.
1: What and Ben Olsen Ben Olsen has proved over his entire tenure that he will start his reserves in the Open Cup. Even if he has to play people out of position, so
0: yeah, at, at this stage of the Open Cup, anyway,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: After so, you, yeah. After you get going, then.
1: I mean, not after, not even after you get going. It's really like the semifinals. If United makes it, where he will maybe put in some starters, but before the semifinals,
3: I don't think I don't think there's a book on what he's going to do outside of. At this stage, the the only time he's played his starters at this stage, the first game of the Open Cup for DC is in 2013, where the season was clearly already way too far gone. Um, right, and that game in Richmond was essentially that was it for the entire year, whole season, whole season, whole season is this game because we're not going anywhere. Um, in other years, it's been a variable um, after what happens after this round. has been a variable. Um,
0: yeah, but right now that right we've now, got this. The season's not that far gone right now. I mean, United's in last right. place it's, in the East, but they're only hopeless, five points right. out of a playoff spot al- with a but game also, in hand.
3: also, like, there's the eyeball test in 2013. Yeah. The eyeball test was there as like this team is going to finish last. There is no, there's no changing that. Um, so they might as well go all in for the Open Cup. Um, but I think part of the reason, part of the influence here, maybe the biggest part of the influence of all, is just that from here, like we've had an easy June so far as far as games, but starting Tuesday, the games come fast. Um, it is a constant midweek weekend midweek weekend uh barrage that runs until july 4th um at, which is a midweek game at fc dallas in july yeah. um so it's not just a barrage it's like an uphill but you're running uphill the whole time um and it's you know united by by throwing away those points in that three game homestand and not doing anything in that they have to find something out of that run um they they can't let these games go by the wayside too and they're going to be difficult but Um, that's the reality. And so you, you, like I said, last week, you have to earn the right to, um, get the option of playing your starters earlier. Um, United hasn't earned the right. So they've, they've got to, they're going to have to pick a game, um, and they're going to pick TFC.
1: So Adam, I have a trivia question for you. Oh, goody. Do you know, because Jason brought it up, do you know how many red cards there were? In the 2013 Richmond Kickers DC United Open Cup match?
0: I don't recall off the top of my head. I remember images from that game. I remember flares in the stands from that game. Um, I mean, it was three.
3: Jason, do you remember? It was two. And I remember which players were sent off. Of course you do, but <laughs> tell our listeners. Uh, the players sent off were Carlos Ruiz, uh, who you may have blocked out as playing for DC United, but no, he did. Um, and Chris Corb picked up two yellow cards. Um, deep, I think it was like the hundred fifteenth, hundred sixteenth minute when he got his uh, red. And so United had to yeah. finish the game eleven on nine. But, but, but attacking...
1: Corb, Corb Corb got his red card first. It was before Ru- Ruiz's red. Card.
3: Okay, yeah. The order. I remember the order. I just I was sure that Corb got it for two yellows, whereas Ruiz got. Uh, His for um, it was Carlos Ruiz. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Um, He should just be sent off uh, at any time. Um, (laughs) He starts the game immediate red card. But uh, yeah, this was also a game in which United was facing a Richmond. This is why United no longer allows their players to go on uh, play in the Open Cup uh, Mm -hmm. while when they're on loan with kickers is because United was taking penalty kicks against Andrew Dykstra. Um and Michael Seaton was uh start he started up front and played sixty minutes in that game. Um, that's not something you should do. Uh, you shouldn't be facing your own players in competition. Uh, or if you are, they should be trying to help you.
1: Um. Oh, and from from well, and also from the Richmond Kickers' point of view, uh, Andrew Dykstra. I I don't I don't believe this, but someone could say that Andrew Dykstra uh didn't perform to his fullest in those penalty kicks like i said i don't believe that but i mean he shouldn't have
3: (laughs) (laughs) his his the thing is in once he appeared for the kickers he couldn't help dc in the open cup at all right um but i mean that's still your your team is still dc united at that point you're uh hanging out with kickers for the day um but in any case to avoid that sort of situation you should not and that's why Alhaji Kamara did not play for the Kickers against Christos earlier, and and Christer, and why Christos didn't play no on the weekend.
1: Well, yeah. not, not for
3: cup tie reasons, yeah. but
1: for just for fitness reasons.
3: Right, um, because ultimately the loan organ that loan benef- that loan setup is it's for the benefit. To be, right, the parent club should get well, be the it's benefits be- they want. Is the idea? Benefited- well, it's not benefit. Well, it's it's not the ideal scenario because obviously they would want a DC United B team where they actually get some authority over what's going on because.
1: No, I'm Le- talking about the current situation. I'm not talking about theoretical situations. I'm talking about how the current situation is not benefiting anybody right
3: now. Well, it should benefit DC because Kamara is going to start on t- on Tuesday, right? Um, it's, and so the is, idea is to
0: get So United players who aren't getting minutes get them actual competition, and if DC United says you have to hold them out, then. Richmond has to hold them out. It, it's not ideal for anybody. Right. But, the, but Richmond, Richmond would agree their to leading it goal if it score, didn't have some benefit for them. Right.
3: Like Richmond's best goal scorer right now is Kamara. Um, not not best so
0: much as only.
3: I mean, it's been a rough year for the kickers. There's no way yeah. around it. Um, but uh, in any case, I think we've gone kind of off the reservation with that. Us? Um,
0: On this show? Right. Go off the rails a little bit? So it's it's been a minute, not just here talking about it but it's been a minute since the the last full round of mls matches and if you remember way back to i don't know just over a week ago dc united was playing the la galaxy to a scoreless draw at rfk stadium probably the best performance in a month even on offense for for dc united just after that game toronto fc was run off the field in a bad way in new england losing three to nothing to the revs Um, DC United travels up to Toronto to face the Reds. Not the Revs, the Reds. I I chose poorly on my use of nicknames during this introduction. 8 o'clock Saturday night, News Channel 8, at BMO Field, DC United taking on Toronto FC, who, despite that result, are still almost certainly the best team in the Eastern Conference. They're in first place. They have, by far, the best goal differential. Jason, what about this Toronto team is working that result last weekend, notwithstanding.
1: Uh,
3: I think it's mostly their ability to um, press teams with numbers. They're playing out of a 3-5-2. And a lot of times when you see 3-5-2, those teams tend to play a medium block or even a low block and then hit you on the counter. TFC comes out and they use, they leverage that fifth midfielder and two forwards. They leverage it to flood your half with players and they win the ball off of you that way. Um, They're also really good at, making it difficult to play through the middle and you end up hitting crosses into a zone where they've got three legitimate center backs. Um, and so you end up being, they have a hard time winning the ball in the air against that group. Um, you have a hard time really attacking the way that, that most teams would like to attack. Um, so they're good at cutting down on the variety of ways teams get at them. They they're good at limiting you to what they want you to do. Um, and at the other end, they've still got Sebastian Giovinco and he's healthy um, Josie Altidore has been in really good form. Uh, Victor Vasquez is, if I'm not mistaken, still leading the league in assists. Um, I probably should have brought that up before I said that. Um, so yeah, they've, they've gone from last year's team was good at the limiting you and forcing you to play the soccer you don't really want to play. But outside of Gio, they didn't, they didn't really have much else going on in the attack. Now they have the league's leading, um, setup man, uh, who didn't even join the team, uh, for preseason, he came in right at the end of the preseason and had to get up to gear while the season was underway. And he's still on 11 as or eight assists already. Um, they're finding goals from some of their reserves. Um, they've found uh, good play at left wing back from Raheem Edwards, who is a teenager they plucked out of their academy, um, who was, he was a forward until very recently, and in fact played as a forward against the Revs. Um, mostly due to just a lack of options with uh, Altador away with the national team at that point, um, or not? Oh, was he away? He might have been away
0: already. I think so. Most of the US went. Most of the US players were pulled early, uh, right, under an agreement that came out later. And yeah, then yeah that's what. Boarding it was. Kansas City asked for a special dispensation to recall Matt Beesler because they had no other center backs. Right.
3: Um. So yeah, Josie, uh, he wasn't there. Um, so they moved Edwards up front, but this, the point is still that, um, they've just got, ex- they've got extremely good depth all over the field. Um, they've got really good talent. Uh, you know, they, they played that game in New England without Bradley, without Altidore. Um, but still it was kind of a, it still felt like a fluke, uh, win for the Revs rather than TFC being figured out or anything like that. Um, for this game, I feel like, door because he didn't play very long in Mexico, is probably going to be back in in uniform. Bradley played both qualifiers, so I'm not sure they're going to throw him out immediately. Um, they might hold him for their next game or at least play him off the bench. Um, the problem is that they've still got Benoit Sheru is a, is a really strong player to fill that role for fill in for Bradley. Um, they've still got Stephen Betashore and Justin Morrow as their wingbacks, which are pretty much the perfect guys to play this system. Um, also guys that San Jose both had, they had both of those players when they won mm-hmm. the Supporter Shield in 2012 and let both of them get away for no apparent reason. Um, don't do that. If you've got good players, like really good players, don't let them just leave over nothing. Uh, without especially even if they th- win you a trophy, right? If it's visibly obvious that they're really good, you should at least put up a fight before they leave. Um, they've got players like Jonathan Osorio, who doesn't get to play that much anymore because of Vasquez and, um uh, Marky Delgado's, um, he's started to establish himself as their ball winner in the midfield. Um, Armando Cooper is a starter for Panama He's sort of a, is he or isn't he a starter with TFC at this point? Um, yeah, they're extremely deep and they're extremely good at what they do. They're comfortable playing three, five, two. They're comfortable with taking that risk to high press, even without, with only three defenders back. Um, they are a difficult opponent i if i'm not mistaken the last team to go to toronto and win however was well, DC, dc united, united. Mm-hmm. um granted dc united playing pretty much at everyone's ceiling um whereas right now that's not the case um but still um it's it's a you know a vision that united on some level tactically knows how to deal with this game a matter of a matter of execution more than it is anything else um it is a little bit Uh, that is sort of selling it short, the challenge that Vasquez poses because last year TFC didn't have a central creator of chances and he is that guy. Um, And he's been really, really good um, at, he's not just setting up scoring opportunities, but putting people into chances where there are great chances. It's not just a chance, it's a really good chance. Um, Shutting him down is going to be vital. Um, I I don't think DC has the offense right now to go to TFC and get into a shootout. Um, I think I'm, I'm putting that lightly. Um, so if, if Vasquez gets going and we have to remember too, that if Giovinco plays against DC United, we have to assume that he's going to have like a hat trick. Um, because mm-hmm. that happens most of the time he suits up against DC. Um, it's a big challenge. Um, it's a big challenge just dealing with Giovinco, uh, with Altador. You throw Vasquez in and that's why they are where they are in the standings is that even the best teams in the league are having a real problem dealing with them.
0: Ben, we talked about the lineup for the Christos games, uh, game. The LA game for, for DC United set up pretty well for the midfield. United had the numbers in central midfield, three versus two. LA aren't really a pressing team. It, it almost set itself up for, for DC United to to look pretty good through midfield, and they did. They looked better than they have in weeks and weeks. This seems like exactly the opposite to me, a high-pressing team that matches numbers in midfield, what should Ben Olson be doing right now to, to mitigate the potential impact of that?
1: I mean, especially with the uh, midweek game, he, he just has to go back to his what he thinks is his best team and has to go with uh, Ian Harks and Lucho Acosta and, I guess, Jared Jeffrey, and that's not great.
0: But... And therein lies the rub. Jared Jeffrey <laughs> yeah, getting pressed uh... is um, not a situation I'm looking forward to.
1: Yeah, I mean, your daughter could probably press him and make him cough up the ball. So it's not good times for DC United and Jared Jeffrey. Um, and it's still probably five or six games until the uh, the window opens. And Jared Jeffrey's going be, gonna to be starting all of those. Well, not all of those, but most of those because... Uh Marcelo Sarlas has fallen off a physical cliff and he's only gonna be starting games where uh he is where Jared Jeffrey is physically incapable of doing so, so it is a DC United is in a conundrum and it's not a good place to be, and I would rather see Adam uh Adam's daughter starting in those interim games.
0: I wouldn't. I don't think it would be a good development opportunity for her. Um, and I,
1: I, 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 I mean, I, I, she she support, would be out there. Um, she supports Talon's house so much that I think she'd be fine.
0: <laughs> she loves Talon's house. Uh, I don't want to teach her that running on the field uh, when you're not officially on the team is okay, though. But she would. Oh, Ben's talking about a scenario where she has signed a contract. That, yeah. Well. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll talk. I mean, if she's bringing in even the league minimum, that's um, that's extra <laughs> income for this family. So right, that's a maybe, big deal. Maybe we do need to talk about it. These
3: day, these days, that's not that's not a joke amount of money. That's a, no, that's a
1: third, a
0: real third income. It's it's not twelve thousand five hundred dollars like it used to be.
1: It's a legitimate right. side hustle,
0: <laughs> or for her, just hustle. Right? Yeah. I mean, preschool. Let's let's be clear. A good Daycare, preschool, preschool whatever is her is her main line, and then soccer would be the side hustle. Yeah. Uh, Jason, what what should be what should DC United be doing to try to open up that Toronto three back and without you know yielding all the goals going the other way?
1: R- uh, they've got murdering Michael Bradley.
3: The the simple thing is to get in behind the wingbacks and keep carry the ball out there. Um, don't just dump it into the box once you get a crossing opportunity because then you're into um, – with Patrick Mullins out, you're looking at like a cross to Jose Ortiz against Drew Moore, Eric Zavaleta. Um, those guys are winning that battle every time in the air. You're, you might as well just kick the ball out of bounds for a goal kick and, and move on if that's your plan. Um keeping the ball wide, forcing those center backs to have to peel out and defend out out of the middle uh, channel. Um if those guys are having to come out and deal with Lloyd Sam wide right, for example, um either he should be able to beat them for speed, or there's a there's a pocket there that opens up for someone else, maybe Lucho running on, maybe it's Ian Harks, but that opens up a pocket for somebody to to break in and all of a sudden now you've got a numerical matchup that you're used to a little more. You've only got two guys left in the middle. Us, you know, The center backs should be out of the equation if you've beaten him in this way. Really is, really is, really is the best way to deal with TFC. Um, you're going to have to be able to break pressure, uh, which is a big challenge for DC, but it's something they're going to have to do it. They, I'm not saying they have to break pressure over and over again, um, but they are going to have to be able to break pressure, establish that they can do it early so that TFC doesn't just keep coming and keep coming until eventually it, it just works itself out. Um, they also need to be smart about slowing transition opportunities down. Um, there was a great video that Matt Doyle posted talking about Montreal figuring this out. Um, and they, they were using the, the example was Kyle Fisher against the Red Bulls stepping into midfield. Not, he didn't win a tackle, but he made enough of a challenge that the Red Bulls had to reset and all of a sudden their transition opportunity, which looked good, disappeared entirely and they had to play slow. And that was much more challenging for them. Um, TFC is better at playing slow than the Red Bulls, but they still, I think when the ball turns over, they want to get forward quickly. They want to have that, that flood of numbers going forward. They don't want to have to break you down over time. They want to get, get players into positions to take advantage while you're still scrambling. Um, so United needs to be smart when they've turned the ball over, they need to slow things down, which means both getting into a good shape, but also the guys that are near that loose ball if you if you can apply that brief spell of um, retaliatory pressure, essentially you don't have to win the ball, but if you get TFC to have to pass back um, and slow down, you're going to save yourself a ton of trouble uh, rather than trying to defend Giovinco uh, while ch- facing your own goal and scrambling out of position. That's te- a terrible plan. Um, so th- those are the main things I would look for: is how how do, how can they disrupt TFC in transition and attacking down the wings but not being cross oriented being really thinking about the dribble having the patience and and the cold the ball really hold the ball until you get that extra man pressuring you and then laying it off before you lose um lose the ball I mean um if they can execute on those two sides of things they've got a real shot at this New England uh showed that this is not an unbeatable TFC team by any stretch of the imagination um so that's the that's the game is really it's not so much one of one where DC United can't do any of that it's just a matter of can they execute um has this break in the season been enough of a reset for them to um get back to not i mean the last couple of games were decent performances outside of finishing outside of that execution at the end um if this reset has allowed them to find themselves a little more and and start to execute at a higher level then they've got an, a do shot at actually doing something um DC has been a pretty good road team this year New York City FC aside, um, they've been pretty good at this on the road. It's it's uh, an interesting and bizarre situation where they're almost a better road team than they are at home. I, I shouldn't even say almost. They are uh, right now yeah. a better road team than a home team. Um, so maybe playing TFC on the road is is uh, a better setup for them than having to face them at RFK. I don't know. I don't understand it. Um, but I, I think this game in a lot of ways comes down to executing a pretty a pretty simple game plan, but... I think TFC, a lot of teams play TFC, and they know it's a game plan. They just can't quite pull it off because TFC is so good at what they do well.
0: So thinking about this and knowing that TFC are going to pressure, I almost want to see Jalen Robinson in this Toronto game instead of against Christos. He was so good on the ball against L.A. uh, when under pressure, when receiving the ball in uh, less than ideal circumstances. I don't know that he necessarily is the best partner for Steve Birnbaum. I'm just not sure that their, their instincts to step or retreat are actually, I think they would, I think they would be good. Um, I would like to see that. I've talked myself into it. That's what <laughs> I would like to see uh, on both sides of the ball, because Robinson's also availed himself pretty nicely against some pretty uh, high powered attackers in yep. this league and no one else has been able to contain Jovinko. So why not give the kid a chance? Uh, I I would really like to see Ben Olsen give him a shot in this game and see if he can see how he does with a couple of league starts in a row rather than just one off here and there. I think that would be interesting to see. Um, And I guess that's where we'll we'll leave it. We'll talk to you uh, real soon. Find us at blackandredunited.com. Find us on Twitter at Black and Red U, for the website at filibuster dcu for the podcast send your emails to filibuster at gmail.com find us on itunes stitcher soundcloud google play the podcatcher of your choice and of course patreon filib- uh, patreon.com slash filibuster if you want to give us a little bit of support financially mostly though we'd appreciate it if you told a friend about the show that's really the best way to spread the word so uh we'll talk to you real soon for ben and jason i'm adam say goodbye jason If you're going to the Plex, get out of my way. You're in Maryland. You have to play
3: by our rules now, uh, which means get out of the way on the road. My way, specifically my way. I shouldn't have said our way. My way. That was a very long goodbye, Jason. You'll be destroyed. If you don't get out of my
0: way, you will be destroyed. Those are your choices.
1: Destroy Maryland.
0: Maryland drivers will destroy you. I I understand this. I'm already gearing up. I'm mad. (laughs)
1: Destroy Maryland.